for half a century, WJPZ Syracuse has been the greatest media classroom on the planet. We've trained students from the 1970s to the 2020s on how to run a professional radio station. But the lessons learned and relationships formed go far beyond studios and transmitters. Taking a look back through the eyes of those who experienced it. This is WJPZ at 50. Welcome to WJPZ at 50. I am John Jagay. Really excited about today's guest. He is a Hall of Famer. He's from the class of 92. He is now the Senior Marketing Manager for Sodexo Live. He is Rocket Larry Ross. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jag. Great to be here today. I'm going to start with you because we have a lot of ground to cover today, but I'll start with you where I start with most, which is how you ended up at Syracuse and the radio station. Uh, there was no doubt for me that I wanted to get into broadcasting. I was a longtime listener of Z100 in New York and uh, watched them launch that radio station and almost felt like a part of it. I was a guest DJ uh, multiple times on the on the station announcing songs. I became a contest participant and <laughs> uh, and frequent winner on Z100 as well. You're dancing around the phrase prize pig. I didn't want to say it because it became a negative later on. But <laughs> the reality was I probably was uh, at the time. I was totally taken by radio. And uh, as soon as I knew that, I knew that I wanted to go to a broadcast school and very quickly it got narrowed down to Syracuse University and Ithaca College, both about four hours away from where I was living in New Jersey, far enough to be away from home, but uh, still close enough where I could return if need be. So felt like a good distance. But after visiting the two schools, it was clear immediately that I fell in love with Syracuse. Everything about it, from the big time sports to having a city not far away from campus, but while you were on campus, you really felt like you were there. And then that radio station, it was that top 40 sound, very similar to what I was growing up with at Z100 and said, oh my gosh, I could actually be a part of this. So you get to the radio station and I'm going to ask you, of course, some of the roles you had at the radio station, but we were telling me offline before we started recording, you as a freshman on the air, pretty significant moment with Pam Am 103. Huge moment. And that was in December at the end of my freshman year and the chance to really experience the impact of radio. Mm. If you think about the time period in December of 1988, no one had cell phones. There was no internet. So you got your news one of three ways, television, radio, or newspaper. Sure. And there was one that broadcast continuously and the other that either published in the morning uh, or published in the afternoon or had those uh, newscasts at very set times. Yeah. So if you weren't listening at those particular times, radio was really your option to get information. And this was really evolving. And you know, we think about security today and the manifests of who's on a plane and, and everything is so clear and all the security measures that take place wasn't really like that back then. Right. You had an ability literally to hand somebody your ticket and with a brief change, you could change what flight you were on. So students were literally passing tickets back and forth. Oh, I'm going to take the later flight. I'm going to take the earlier flight. So there was all of this, you know, unknown as to who was on that flight. What we did know, you know, was that there was a large contingent of Syracuse University students returning from London after a semester abroad. And we knew that there were some amount of those on that flight. And 
when the crash happened and word started to filter out, we moved to a news format that afternoon and evening as the information flowed out. For the first time in probably a really long time, the station decided to shut down over the overnight period out of respect for the unknown number of students who were aboard that flight. When we came back on the air the next morning, the crazy morning crew turned to an all news format and, you know, for four hours just reported the information as it was coming in. I was doing the midday shift and I was only doing that because I think uh, our program director wanted to fill all the open slots on the uh, the jock list so he could go home for the Christmas break. Well, yeah, because this is a week before Christmas, so you are get kind of a skeleton crew at that point, right? Skeleton crew, but Syracuse University final schedule went a lot later then than it did now. Um, I had one of the last days scheduled for finals, so I was still on campus and signed up for two or had hoped to sign up for two midday shifts. And I remember uh, at that point I had been cleared for up to 11 to 2 in the evening. I had moved past that overnight slot, but I had not yet been cleared for middays. And I remember Darren McKee, the program director, saying, well, if, you know, let's wait a few more days. And if nobody signs up for it, you can have it. And ultimately, he said, OK, those ships are yours. Little did I know how impactful those ships would be, mm. um, because even during that midday shift, I remember Dave Roberts, who was also a freshman at the time, had attended the university's press conference as a member of the JPZ News Department and came back from that with a list of the 35 students who were aboard that plane. And remember now, newspaper has already published that day. There's no news now on television until 5, 6 p.m. So we're sitting on a list of students on that flight that nobody had. Uh, at the same time, we're also uh, giving information out on services at Hendricks Chapel, you know, uh, where students could go to get resources. We never read that list of students on the air, but it became uh, apparent that we had that information. And I started fielding phone calls during that shift, fraternity brothers and sorority sisters wanting to know if Oof. members of their house were on that flight, uh, students calling to find out if their roommate was aboard. Uh, sometimes I was able to give them some relief and say, no, their name is not on that list. And then there were other times where we actually had to break the news that, yes, they had lost a, a close member of their oh. family. So extremely impactful and, and a shift that I will never forget. I, I'm, I'm getting choked up just hearing you describe this. And you're, what, 18 years old? And you've been placed this burden of unbelievable responsibility to deliver life-changing news one way or the other to these folks who are calling you. I can't imagine being in your shoes at that point. It, it's the one shift at WJPZ that feels like yesterday. I'm sure. And it's been a long time since 1988, but that is so clear in my mind. And the other amazing part of that shift is I got a phone call from a Syracuse University student who was on campus who was from Lockerbie, Scotland, where the plane had crashed. Wow. Uh, again, thinking about the time in the 80s, no cell phone, no internet. Phone lines were down because of the plane crash in her hometown, and she could not get a hold of her family. She had no idea if her family was okay oh. and just needed someone to talk to. And, you know, wow, talk about the power of radio and the impact you can have on individuals, whether delivering news to them or just being that shoulder of somebody to listen to that they could speak to 
and share a moment with. So very, very powerful day and clearly one of the most impactful days for me at WJPZ. So in between these phone calls, Rocket, are you, you're just playing music and just kind of somber breaks? I mean, what, how, what does that look like? Yeah, we had toned down the, uh, the music on the station. You know, it took out everything overly upbeat, anything, you know, slightly controversial. I still remember a talk up, you know, providing information on resources, where current students could gather at Hendricks Chapel for some services, and doing a talk up over Phil Collins' Two Hearts. And that was the kind of music, you know, that we were playing at the time, keeping everything, you know, really low key. And, you know, we needed to get back to music and back to what we were doing, but wanted to do it in a very respectful way. And again, throughout this podcast, we've seen so many parallels of different generations that dealt with similar things. I mean, for me, the only comparison that comes to mind was being on the air on September 11th and having to provide news, provide resources. We have an episode of the podcast where we talk about that with Leah Peterman, Brett Bossy and I, who were all on the air that day. And then we made the decision at some point to have to change back over to music and really scale down that playlist, take out anything too upbeat, anything that might be interpreted as insensitive. I mean, yeah. it, the parallels between these two events, and obviously it, September 11th didn't hit quite as home as Pan Am 103 did, but we sort of, of course had students that had parents in the towers and, and all that kind of stuff. So it really is an odd parallel when you look at those two events. Two major impacts on Syracuse University. Obviously, yes, like you said, Pan Am more directly involved students, but we know with the size of Syracuse University, countless numbers of students, and probably more so than not, knew someone who was impacted severely by September 11th. So yeah, it, absolutely, you know, major impact. Because there's no easy way to transition out of this, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Rocket Ross and talk about more stuff at the station and his career ever since. It's WJPZ. At 50. Hey, it's Jag. You're probably listening to this episode of the podcast because you know the person I'm interviewing. But one of the true joys of this project has been learning the stories of everyone in the WJPZ family. When you're done with this podcast, I'd encourage you to check out an episode with someone you don't know. You never know what you might have in common with your other WJPZ relatives. Looking back at half a century of broadcast excellence. This is WJPZ at 50. Back with Rocket Ross from the class of 92, talking about all things JPZ. So we talked about you know, the significant events of Pan Am 103 a moment ago, but tell me what else you did at the station, how else you were involved, and what stuff was going on while you were there. Just a great time at WJPZ, and I wanted to get involved in as many different departments as I could. Interestingly enough, while I was going through jock training and, and learning to be a DJ and getting that first chance to go on the air, I joined the research department known as the audience research department. And we did call out research at the time, literally using a phone book and calling people in the Syracuse area, playing little snippets of songs, getting feedback from them on the music we were playing, you know, as well as some demographic information. One of the other roles as a member of the uh, audience research department was tabulating the votes for the top uh, eight and nine. Yes. So getting a chance to hang out with our uh, top eight jocks, answer the phones for them, provide them all of the information, you know, get the callers ready to announce the songs. Who were some of those jocks as you were coming up at through the ranks at that point? At that point, uh, Jim Mahoney was on the air. Kristen Sloan was on the air. I think Mike Sullivan was on the air. 
you know, it was a little early for, you know, the Hal Roods, the Scott Meaches, And then, you know, over the next year, you started to see them move into those. But, uh, you know, just a great group of air personalities to learn from and to be able to shadow. So kind of accomplishing two birds with one stone, learning while helping them through their shift. So mm-hmm. eventually I got an assistant program director position, ultimately became chief announcer uh, in charge of training uh, air checks and scheduling of all of our DJs on the radio. I worked in promotions. I uh, was a vice president of operations, filled a lot of different roles at the station in my time. And, and certainly while we were there summers, uh, you wore a lot of hats uh, while we were a little bit more of a skeleton crew, which turned out to be just an awesome opportunity to learn about radio and learn about all the different things that the different departments did. I even got a chance to do a little sales. Uh, who knew that I could sell a sponsorship to a bank and get them to give us cash to give away as part of the 89 days of summer? Which bank was it? Oh boy, uh, Geddes Savings and Loan. All right. On the outskirts of Syracuse, but uh, that's when you knew the power of the signal uh, reaching all parts of the uh, the Syracuse metro There's area. There's a windmill in Geddes, as I recall. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. So after you graduate in 92, take me through your career path, and I've got to imagine all the stuff we've talked about previously at the station taught you a lot of lessons applied throughout your career since. Tell me where you were in the last 30 years. Yeah, wow. 30 years. Woo. It, you know, it actually started while I was at WJPZ and I knew I wanted to get into radio at the time. So an internship at Hot 97 under Rocco Macri yeah. and some on-air work for WPST in the Trenton, Philadelphia uh, market. And ultimately uh, that led to uh, two jobs in the Syracuse area and just beyond the Syracuse area. Opportunities at Y94, both uh, in on-air and promotions during my senior year. And a radio station that was going live for the first time in Watertown, New York, T93, offered me a a noon to six Saturday, Sunday uh, weekend slot. And uh, I did that during my senior year. And then upon graduation, they also named me promotion director of the station. But I never moved to Watertown. I, I commuted to Watertown, still living in Syracuse at 507 University Avenue, the famous, uh, home of so many JPZ alums and yep, yep. trying to be a, uh, a professional at, while still living the student life for an extra year uh, after graduation. So some fun times, but uh, after doing a winter of commuting. That was my next question. A winter of commuting between Syracuse and Watertown up 81. Oof. Snow will never scare me again. Um, you learn to respect it. <laughs> I bounced off snowbanks. I went through whiteouts. You name it. I uh, had some very treacherous drives, but I knew one winter of that was enough. And I quickly, you know, started applying for additional opportunities and was offered a promotion director job in Rochester, New York for an AM FM combo, a country station and a, and a big band AM station at the time. Two formats I knew very little about, but I knew about promotions and was prepared to step in. That was right at the age of duopoly. So during my four years there, we bought two additional FM signals, uh, an oldie station and a classic hit station. And they continued to add additional hats uh, to my head where I was now overseeing marketing and promotions for a four station group. Working a ton of hours, making very little money, Yep. um, but having the time of my life When I was approached by a local promoter of Broadway shows and concerts at a local amphitheater, 
because we work so closely with them uh, as a radio station to promote all of their activities, they were looking for a director of marketing. And uh, it was one of those phone calls where they said, hey, do you know anybody who might be interested in this uh, while also putting the feelers out? And I said, I, I just might. Maybe we could talk and have lunch. And sure enough, turned into an opportunity to be their director of marketing, oversee the advertising, promotion, and publicity for a full concert lineup at an outdoor amphitheater in the summer months and, and a full Broadway lineup in the fall, winter, and spring, and then assorted concerts, kids shows, you name it, at the local arena and, and auditorium. And certainly one of the most fun jobs I've ever had, being able to meet so many different artists, so many different entertainers, tell all those great stories of, you know, who was fun to throw a Frisbee with and who rolled off the backseat of the limo when, because they had too much to drink before the concert. So any chance you want to drop a name there? <clears throat> Joe Cocker. Uh, <laughs> ah, there you go. There it is. Right, rest in peace. Uh, but uh, a great entertainer. No, I remember taking Nell Carter to uh, to Wegmans because she needed Epsom salt to uh, soak her feet. Hmm. Uh, taking Alan Thick for a garbage plate in Rochester. There you go. And, you know, uh, hearing some very interesting stories of, of his career as well. So some very fun times. I met my wife there who was running the box office because we were working all week long to do all the marketing for all of the shows. And then all the shows were on nights and weekends. So you had no life. The only people you hung out with were the, uh, the people you worked with. So your work wife eventually became your actual wife. Uh, yes, uh, in, in many ways. And we didn't like each other at the start either, but uh, stranger things have happened. So I spent three years there and then um, was offered a position moving into restaurant marketing. And the parallel was that the local restaurant franchise group that owned ultimately almost 80 Burger King and Friendly's restaurants operated restaurants in the same territories that we were marketing to for our concerts and events uh, while I was at the Rochester Broadway Theater League. You never would have expected going from, you know, entertainment marketing over to restaurant marketing, but I was working with the same radio and TV stations to buy advertising, the same newspapers, you know, using the same print vendors, you know, to print signage and, and different things. So it became a natural fit. And I actually spent almost 13 years with them as they continued to grow and uh, expand their portfolio. And then ultimately, many people know Friendly Corporation went through some tough times. They had declared bankruptcy. And as a franchise group, Guests don't un understand the difference between a franchise restaurant and a and a franchisee restaurant. They just know the name and they know, yeah. oh my gosh, you're, you're going through tough times. Restaurants are closing. Is my restaurant going to close? And we saw business really kind of tail off where ultimately our owners decided to sell back to Friendly Ice Cream Corporation all of the restaurants they owned. And then led to an elimination of my position because they couldn't afford a full-time marketing director after they had divested 75% of their portfolio. So, God, I miss Friendlies. Jeffy K, if you're listening, I miss Friendlies. Friendlies was great. And that ultimately led me uh, to Sodexo. And I joined uh, Sodexo in uh, January of 2014. And I joined initially in their universities division doing marketing for all of the, uh, the college campuses in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and part of Massachusetts, where they operated the dining programs and the retail programs on campus. Before too long, I moved into the uh, sports and entertainment division 
which after the purchase of Center Plate got renamed as Sodexo Live. And uh, now I oversee field marketing for all of the stadiums and arenas, conventions and conference centers, museums, zoos, aquariums, amphitheaters, amusement parks, auditoriums, ski resorts, you name it, uh, that we operate throughout North America. What you do is fascinating because full disclosure, you invited me out to a Michigan football game last year when you came out and we were in the suite and you were telling me all these things about the science and the research about what goes into a menu and how you design a menu and the font and the items. The science behind that is absolutely fascinating. It really is. And I love the ability to get people to buy what we want to sell. I like it. And if you think about Panera Bread, if you can picture a menu board, uh, what do you see? You see that you pick two entree on there. And why do you see that? Well, it's raised up above the rest of the board. It's in the center. It's got a different background color. It's got a, you know, a high impact food photography with it. And that's one of their most profitable items. But it also is one of their most high satisfaction items because guests feel like they get variety. I got to choose, hey, Part of it's sandwich and a salad or uh, a salad and a soup. So they walk away feeling good, but Panera walks away with some decent profit. You're certainly paying more than just half the price of yeah. that half a salad and half the soup. So they're making good money. You're walking away satisfied. And everybody wins. And, and today, uh, with all of the changes that are coming to technology to change the guest experience, especially in stadiums and arenas, walkout markets where you don't even need to check out and pay anymore, where uh, the Amazon Go cameras pick up what you purchase and charge your account, in-seat ordering, you know, QR code ordering, there's pickup lockers in, in certain stadiums, all different things that really change the guest experience to ultimately get you back to your seat faster so you can enjoy what you came for and don't have to spend your time waiting in line. So uh, a fascinating group to work for, and especially with with all the technology changes that have come in, in recent years. If there's one thing that benefited from COVID, it's QR codes. Those things were dead in 2019. <laughs> Everybody knows how to work a QR code now. Let me bring it back to JPZ Rocket. A time that I think a lot of our alumni don't know that much about is the receivership era in the mid to late 90s. The station went through some difficult times, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were on the board of directors at that point. Do I have that right? So there were two pieces to it. First, I received a letter from Dean Barry Wells, who was the Dean of Student Relations and Vice President for Student Affairs at the time, asking me to sit on a receivership committee that was being formed that would kick off in January of 1998. And that went on uh, for almost a full year. And then beyond that, they formed a revised board of directors for WJPZ, including alumni representation. And at the end of 1998, all the way through 2003, I held the alumni board seat on that JPZ board of directors. Okay. Cause that's where I first met you because I got there in fall of 98 and graduated in 02. So I got there and I'm hearing words like receivership and things like that. And I'm like, what the heck happened before I got here? So kind of give us just a quick 101 on what happened with the station and why this was necessary? There were really three things cited in the letter for the rationale for forming a receivership committee. Struggles with finances, problems with organizational structure, and the obligations for license renewal. Financial. Not just financial, but our license renewal was held up due to challenges that had been taking place. So we were working through that process to make sure that the WJPZ license would live on. Mm -hmm. 
new group of students. I think we're coming off of the pulse error. So a lot of turnover in the, in the change in format. And they cited the inexperience of the students, well-meaning students, but a lot of inexperience. So they had accumulated substantial debt, including almost $30,000 in debt just with our attorneys that were helping with our license renewal, you know, and other debt as well. The license renewal had been held up longer than it should have. And, and that may have been somewhat a function of the FCC, but it was also a function of the challenges that had been put in against us. There was a student group grievance that was put in place citing potential discrimination. So there was a lot of struggle for that station group. And really more than anything, they needed guidance. Mm -hmm. Because you can imagine as students going through things like that, it's just not something you've done before. We all took those lessons and used them elsewhere, but you didn't have lessons from before that to apply the WJPD and especially when it was going through tough times. So we had monthly meetings. I would uh, make the monthly commute from Rochester whenever I could. If not, I would join, you know, via teleconference. But on that were faculty representatives, other members of the university and other members of the Syracuse community, as well as obviously the students from WJPZ. And, you know, they would take us through the steps they're taking. They would look to us for guidance. Um, there was a lot of communication between meetings of how they should approach certain things and how they could kind of turn things around to get the station whole and right side up again. Any of those factors you cited, did it seem like any were more of a concern than the others or was it all of them in totality? I think it was all in totality. Certainly anytime you have significant debt, that raises some eyebrows. And if you have the ability to want the ability to continue to operate, you have to have the financial means to do so. But at the same time, if you don't have a license, you're not going to operate either. So fair enough. Those two things were were major factors. And then, you know, the challenges that some of these groups, you know, had pushed against WJPZ, uh, really, they just needed to reorganize. Um, there were some challenges as well, legally, with sponsorships that we were running that may have stretched the line of what we legally could or couldn't do. And that was used as a potential challenge against our license renewal as well. We've all heard the John Oldfield stories of, uh, you know, the signal interfering with WRVO and Oswego. So there were a lot of things that were sitting in front to review and a legal team that was working on our behalf who we didn't have the ability to pay. Yeah. So all of those factors together really put the station in a, in a really tough time. And, you know, while no one wanted to see receivership, and I remember, you know, coming back to the banquet weekends and talking at the alumni meeting and kind of explaining what receivership was, there was a lot of pushback that, hey, this isn't a good thing. But the reality is, uh, without all of those different individuals providing support and guidance to the students, I'm not sure that any student group would have been able to turn it around completely on their own. It kind of had to be a little bit full circle for you, Rocket, because you're there late 80s, early 90s, the flamethrower days where the station goes independent from the university and it's raking in all this kind of cash, like you said, cash to give away from banks, literally. And then, you know, 10 or so years later, we're looking at the situation where 
the station is in real jeopardy at this point. And I think it's probably a credit to you and the folks that you went to school with to say, hey, you know what? I'm being called upon to step up here because this station means too much. We have to do what we can to save this radio station and not let this thing go away after all this time. It did. It meant so much to all of us. And there was no way we were going to let it fail. But at the same time, we had to remember that things were changing and things were different. And not every student there today, you know, today in the late 90s was the same student that was there in the late 80s and early 90s. So just because we were able to be financially independent, that we were able to generate all of this revenue from sponsorships, that we were able to staff the station 24-7, 365 days of the year, didn't mean that all of that could still happen today. So you had to keep an open mind, which I'll admit was tough for me mm -hmm. because I wanted them to succeed in the same way that we did and said, hey, we gave away cars three years in a row. What do you mean you can't sell a sponsorship? You know, but you couldn't say that. You had to provide some guidance, some ideas. We were short on money for printer paper to print our selector logs at that point. So yeah, night and day. Feast and famine, for sure. And I think it's to your credit and to everybody involved in that time. I know uh, Dean Jacoby at her Hall of Fame speech told the story of receivership and basically looked around the room at a bunch of jaws on the floor because I don't think folks know that. So I'm glad we spent a few minutes kind of talking about that because, you know, it was a difficult time for the station, but it was absolutely key in the station's survival. So thank you for your role in all of this. Well, you're welcome. There were a lot of people at play. And honestly, the students who brought us through they were the implementers. We may have given them some ideas or some guidance, but they needed to make it happen. So credit to Dina and all of the students who were there at the time for really turning things around. Let me uh, bring it back bigger picture. What are some great memories you have from the station, relationships you've had, funny stories, that kind of stuff before we wrap it up, Rocket? There's so much. And honestly, we could probably do a whole podcast uh, just on, on those memories. Uh, but I think when I go back to memories, the first memory is my first on-air shift. And it was an overnight, uh, obviously, from 2 to 4 a.m. Um, it followed uh, a show called The Sunday Night Love Flight. Yes. And, you know, many people remember that. And what a group led by a gentleman who went by the name of DJ Finesse on the air. <laughs> and uh, all love songs and dedications. And to set the stage, they had every light in the studio off. They had candles on there was incense burning and a group of probably 10 to 12 individuals in the station from 10 p.m to 2 a.m on a sunday yeah. night doing the sunday night love flight and i come on to follow this uh very intimidating for oh, sure a, a freshman uh coming in to do his first shift and you know they had the the turntables out i mean they're playing music in a variety of different ways so as I get ready to do my first on-air break, you know, a few minutes after 2 a.m., and DJ Finesse, uh, Shelvin was his name, uh, was still in the studio with me, and I've got my headphones on, and I, I pot up my mic, and, you know, C89, the music mix is the difference. It's 207 with Rocket Ross in the middle of a 14-in-a-row power play on Z89. You know, and I finish it, and I pot the mic down, and I take my headphones off, and Wet's pouring from my brow. And he turns to me, he goes, that was great. He goes, next time, he goes, press this button here. That'll actually turn your microphone on and people will be able to hear oh. you. 
So I had to do it all over again over the next song. Oh my God, classic. And that was the start of, of JPD. But um, so many great stories. I mean, I, a lot of them come from the summer. I spent up uh, on campus and really created so many close relationships while I was there. The story that, that Dave Gorab always loves to tell is we, we were broadcasting from the New York State yep. Fair and we had a Z89 prize mobile. We had a van with all of our stuff until Beth Gorab crashed it, but that's a whole <laughs> different story. <laughs> Uh, but the real quick, the, the funny part about that is, is that when Beth called the station after she got into an accident, Dave answered the phone and they had just started dating, but she couldn't talk to him. And instead she said, I need to speak to Rocket. <laughs> so, but anyway, something had gone wrong that day. And I remember, you know, I was broadcasting. I ended up broadcasting all day at the fair. The person who was supposed to relieve me never showed up, uh, you know, it, Whatever prizes I was supposed to have, I didn't have. They weren't packed. They, you know, everything, it just felt like it had gone wrong that day. Yeah. And I came back with the van. I slammed the keys on the table at JPZ, and I, I just proceeded to kind of blow up. And, you know, uh, I said, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of this. I'm, I'm done. That's it, Dave. I quit. I'm done. Wow. He just laughed. He goes, okay, Rocket, see you tomorrow. <laughs> and <he> just, <laughs> And it just kind of broke the ice of everything because he knew it meant way too much to me. There was no way I was going to quit, but he needed to let me sound off. And then he said, all right, see you tomorrow. <laughs> so I think that is a perfect place to leave it. Rocket Ross, Hall of Famer, thank you for all you've done as a student, as an alum, and as a friend to so many of us. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in March. Thank you so much, Jag, and thank you for doing this. What a fantastic way for one, for us to relive our memories, but two, to preserve JPZ history. So thank you again. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. The WJPZ at 50 podcast is created entirely by the staff and alumni of the world's greatest media classroom. It's hosted by John Jag Gay, class of 2002. Editing help from James Bames Grundy III, class of 2020. Imaging by Maureen Cooper, class of 1999. And Ed Lacombe, class of 1985. Podcast artwork by Marty Dundix, class of 2001. Follow WJPZ at 50 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now.